Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today we'll be discussing the article titled Case Studies in Neuroscience, Neuropathology, and Diaphragm Dysfunction in Ventilatory Failure from Late Onset Pompeii Disease. Joining us today are Editor-in-Chief Professor Nino Ramirez and co-authors Dr. Barbara Smith and Dr. Dave Fuller. So let's get started. Thank you very much, Jamie, and many thanks, Barbara and Dave, for participating in our podcast series. And I was really inspired by this very interesting case study for our journal because it brings together important clinical but also basic science implications. And it's important for the listener to see, you know, what what kind of case studies are perfect for the Journal of Neurophysiology. And I think this was a perfect example for this. And I'm particularly fascinated by the team of physical therapists and neuroscientists that you brought together to tackle this complex kind of neuromuscular condition. And Barbara, you are a physical therapist with many years of experience in acute care and ICU clinical practice. And you're also a scholar in physiology and exercise sciences. And Dave, you're a professor also in physical therapy, but your background is more in the basic sciences and in particular neuroplasticity. You studied for many years and I'm a big fan of your work and Barb's fan. And you studied how the brainstem and spinal cord generates breathing and the mechanisms associated with the motor recovery, for example, uh, in case, for example, of spinal cord injury. Now here, you apply your more than 20 years, amazing, more than 20 years of translational research experience to study Pompe disease, which is a metabolic lysosomal storage disorder with complex and also devastating neuromuscular consequences. And you focus on one patient with late onset Pompe disease and showed and explored the longitudinal changes in phrenic neurophysiology and the associated neuropathology as the disease uh, progresses. So perhaps before we dive deeper into the study and the lessons learned, uh, Barbara, could you please describe Pompe disease to the listener and what do we know about the underlying mechanism and the clinical consequences of the disease? Barbara, thank you so much. And thank you, Nino. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here. I, I'm happy to be here and grateful for the opportunity to talk about this unique case. So to start off, uh, Pompe disease, um, it's also called glycogen storage disease type 2, and it's a rare disorder. It's caused by mutations in a gene uh, that encodes acid alpha-glucosidase, or GAA. Um, It's a little easier to say GAA. Uh, And that's an enzyme that typically cleaves glycogen and lysosomes. Uh, It frees glucose to be transported back into the cytosol. And a deficiency in the GAA enzyme leads to accumulation of glycogen in lysosomes. And, And this then impairs function uh, in many cell types, but especially in muscle cells, both cardiac and skeletal, uh, liver, and in neurologic tissue. The severity of GAA deficiency really influences what we might see clinically. So this is an autosomal recessive disorder. And if a person receives a gene from each parent, and that gene from each parent does not work well, then it results in a, a severe presentation and problems that typically present even early on in infancy. Individuals with later onset Pompe disease 
uh, typically have greater residual GAA enzyme function. And thus they may not show initial symptoms until later in childhood or even into adulthood. And, and symptoms of Pompe disease, uh, particularly those later onset patients uh, like, like we'll be discussing today, more variability between individuals, but progressive trunk and proximal muscle weakness, uh, respiratory insufficiency, and loss of functional independence are, are common among patients. Thank you so much. And I think the current treatment option is mainly limited to enzyme replacement therapy. And, and Barb, what are the opportunities and what are the limitations of this approach as you see it? Absolutely. Yeah. So the primary treatment option for Pompe disease is enzyme replacement therapy. It's a recombinant human GAA enzyme that is intravenously infused every one to two weeks. And so the first enzyme replacement therapy was approved uh, 15 years ago now, um, initially approved for use in children with that severe infantile onset disease. And really for those children, it's been a game changer. Um, death for untreated children was typically in, you know, um, still in infancy. And so survival has become much more extended for these children and, and children who were treated in the, the seminal studies. Um, some are surviving even into adulthood. The, the challenge uh, with enzyme replacement therapy is that it's a little bit difficult for that enzyme to enter muscle cells. Uh, so uh, large boluses need to be given to patients to even get a, a small amount into the muscle. And the GAA enzyme does not uh, treat uh, neural pathology. And so individuals, of course, this is a glycogen storage disease. It's not necessarily a muscle disease versus a neural or a, a cardiac disease. Um, so many body tissues are affected. And, and so uh, individuals may experience a benefit or um, period where uh, their independent function is prolonged, but eventually, um, you know, the, the disease nevertheless continues to progress. Thank you so much. And I, I think some people also develop antibodies, I think, to the, to the treatment, which, which can be, I think, a, a big complication factor also. So, so the big hope is, of course, gene therapy. And, uh, and not only for Pompe disease, but the whole family of different metabolic disorders. I know it's not the topic of this, this study here, but could you give us a little bit of your ideas on how you see gene therapy making a difference maybe in the future or not? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's been considerable interest in gene therapy, not just in Pompe disease, but in many other conditions where uh, a single gene has been identified that is causative of the pathology. So, so this is an area of great interest for us as scientists, also uh, patients who are seeking um, additional approaches for, for these you know, really devastating disorders. It, it may not necessarily be a single approach. It may be multiple treatments that we, that we layer in and weave together to form a, an optimal management for patients. But of course, uh, gene therapy, I think, is, is under considerable scrutiny from biotechnology and, and industry, as well as a, as a new frontier for managing 
uh, these conditions. Uh, so my area of expertise is breathing. And um, I've worked, in fact, uh, with, <laughs> yeah, two thumbs up. Yay. <gasps> Yay, go breathing. But um, I've uh, uh, worked uh, with Dr. Barry Byrne, who is a co-author on this paper, on some uh, clinical trials investigating the role of gene therapy in improving breathing. Um, there are certainly many promising factors that may benefit patients, uh, but also plenty of challenges as well. As you identified, Nina, with uh, one concern with enzyme replacement therapy is the, the development of immune responses to uh, ERT. And that certainly is a concern in gene therapy. Uh, there are potential immune responses to the vector capsid. Uh, that's a concern, uh, as well as immune responses to the new transgene that the body creates. Um, and, and those can also be uh, problematic. They can limit functional improvements that we hope to see down the road. Um, you know, those functional gains that, that we and our patients hope to see. And, and elevated immune responses, they can create problems, you know, within the body. It's certainly possible to administer immune suppression, both before, during, and after receiving gene therapy. But the tricky part, I think, really now is, is identifying which immune modulators, how much, and, and for how long, you know, do patients need to receive those in order to derive the benefit that we hope that they will get from this gene correction. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Barbara. And I think, you know, you're right. It's a big, big hope. But I think if we look into it, well, we're not, not there yet. So Dave, uh, your input on the gene therapy, I think it, it's such an interesting topic that even though it's not, not the focus here, maybe get your input. That would be great. Sure. Yeah. I wanted just to say a few things. So just broadly, there are a few different promising strategies. And I wanted to mention that our group uh, and this was led by Barry Byrne, and Barbara was a huge part of this, has done a clinical trial with direct delivery of gene therapy to the human diaphragm. So with that, the, the, the approach is that if there's a muscle or motor system that's dysfunctional, can we deliver the gene therapy construct, in this case, adeno-associated virus, directly to the muscle? And that, that had some very promising results, and it's something we're still interested in. And, and uh, my lab has been testing out gene delivery to the tongue as another thing, because Pompeii uh, patients can have considerable motor dysfunction in the tongue. So that's one approach is direct muscle delivery. Um, the other way you can go is to try to broadly treat everything. So in that there's, there are groups doing wonderful work with trying to turn the liver into a GAA factory using viral techniques so that the, the patient's own liver will produce GAA and it'll circulate. Uh, and that's, again, very promising. Uh, and then we're also at the moment working very hard on just intravenous delivery of viral vectors with ubiquitous promoters in order to correct everything. So we're using preclinical animal models to test whether or not we can treat at a young age and then drive GAA expression throughout the body uh, uh, for the lifespan. So just, just broadly, you can you target a muscle or you can target everything. I think there's real promise for both approaches. 
fascinating. My God, yes, cutting edge. Dave, thanks so much. And uh, actually, I want to have questions on animal model also later on, but but let's maybe summarize first the main results of your study and uh, what did you find? That would be great. Sure. So um, this case study, I think, was a really unique opportunity for our team to follow a patient over a several year period using both clinical and neurophysiological measures of breathing function. Uh, this was a ventilator dependent adult with Pompe disease and uh, had sustained period of ventilator dependence uh, before we met him. And he required very high levels of uh, breathing support, interfered with even simple tasks like eating or completing oral hygiene. And so we met him as he was seeking out a clinical evaluation to determine if he might be eligible for a diaphragmatic pacemaker. So during those inquiries, the patient was introduced to our study team and also agreed to participate in a, a long-standing natural history study that, that is ongoing with our group uh, focusing on rare disease. And as part of that natural history study, we had this you know, sort of special opportunity to evaluate changes in this patient's function over several years' time. It's what we report on here. And so we conducted simultaneous clinical and neurophysiologic tests of resting breathing on his full ventilator support, spontaneous breathing without the ventilator, as well as maximal voluntary efforts. So after the patient did in fact receive a diaphragm pacemaker, and he used this pacemaker along with periods where he would use less support from the ventilator just throughout the day and over time. But when we would evaluate him, we would have the opportunity to use those pacer wires to record spontaneous diaphragm EMG using those indwelling electrodes. And so during uh, voluntary breathing activities, we could study changes in the neurophysiology over time. And so uh, we worked with the patient uh, for several years and he remained clinically stable for a few years, uh, but his Pompe disease nevertheless um, did continue to progress. And unfortunately, he began to experience uh, some neurologic decline that further challenged his breathing. And after about five and a half years, um, he passed away. Just before that time, the family reached out to us uh, to inform us of the situation. And we had a, a very unique opportunity at that time to receive a tissue donation from the patient. Uh, using tissue from the brainstem and the spinal cord and the diaphragm, uh, we were then able to uh, identify substantial muscle and neural involvement uh, with histologic techniques that were consistent with his advanced clinical and neurophysiologic presentation. Thank you very much, Barb. And I can imagine that during this progression, you had also very difficult ethical discussions with the patients you know, as, as the clinical condition deteriorated. And I think it would be important to discuss this since these are discussions that are very difficult and also probably also apply to other disorders such as ALS and, and other neurodegenerative disorders. So if you can talk about this a little bit, that would be great, Barb. Yeah, sure. So this was actually a conversation that we did not initiate. Um, the family reached out to us first 
to inform us of the situation and, and then to ask what they could do to continue to contribute to our work. It was a you know, pretty amazing patient and pretty amazing family. This was a, a patient who um, I, I always thought of him as an honorary scientist, just a very inquisitive individual, always, you know, really excited to participate and, and learn. And, you know, um, oftentimes our, our data collection sessions, they, they kind of took a long time. What is that? What are we seeing here? And, you know, just very curious. And so after the family approached us, you know, we really pondered what information, you know, we, we were hoping uh, maybe to learn and then proceeded to ask if the family would consider a tissue donation. And, and that uh, tissue donation, that involves a uh, um, consenting patient. We have a neuromedicine tissue bank here at the University of Florida. And so individuals with um, neurodegenerative diseases can make that choice you know, proactively uh, to participate. And so we had those processes in place to be able to accept that tissue donation. Wonderful. Barb, so it was really a teamwork of, of scientists and the patient and the interactive process. And, and really it led also to a paradigm shift, I feel, in the understanding of the disease, because I think initially people thought it's mainly a muscular problem, but I think your, your main finding is that there's a very striking neuropathology associated with this. And, and that as the progression went on, you had increased involvement of the CNS and the central nervous system, et cetera. And how, how will this finding now impact future strategies to treat breathing difficulties beyond, let's say, for example, pacing of the diaphragm? Yeah, this is an excellent question because I think the, the, um, the typical paradigm is still thinking that uh, we need to correct muscular pathology. And certainly, I think especially earlier on in the progression of, of Pompe disease, we see very, very prominent muscle pathology, muscle involvement. Um, but, you know, there are a couple, you know, this is neuromuscular function. And eventually, when one half of the couple uh, begins to deteriorate, we will eventually see um, uh, neural uh, involvement as well. Um, and particularly, I think, in those individuals who their disease has taken them to the point where they require most or full-time external breathing support, um, we will see further neural involvement. And so how will this impact future strategies to treat breathing difficulties? Uh, so I think Dave has highlighted on a few of those, how we're looking to identify neural corrective therapies, perhaps including those gene therapies. Uh, that's, that's certainly a an approach that has generated considerable interest uh, from our group, but I think as well as others. Thank you. Uh, Dave, you, you kind of pioneered this idea of using, for example, acute intermittent hypoxia in spinal cord injury to, to use neuroplasticity to strengthen you know, activation of muscles at the level of the central nervous system. Do you think this is helping in this case where you, you have also the deterioration of of the neural drive during the progression? And, and is this a possibility? It's an excellent question. Um, I think to answer that, I'd have to reference uh, Gordon Mitchell's work who has 
explored in ALS, which we know is a very profound progressive neuropathology, uh, they have shown some benefits of the intermittent hypoxia training in that disease. So it's not something that we've explored in the context of Pompeii. Um, we've really just been focused exclusively on describing the impact of the disease on the neural regulation of breathing in some of the animal models, and then trying to, we've been kind of all in on gene therapy to, to treat it, but it is, I think it's very possible that therapies that are aimed at targeted neuroplasticity, such as hypoxia, could potentially have some benefit here. We just haven't, we haven't gone down that pathway yet. Mm -hmm. And now that you're talking about it, I think one of the strengths of your approaches is that you study human patients, but also animal models and combine both, you know, interactively, which I think is, is fascinating. So what insights can you gain in animal models and how similar is the disease progression in the mouse versus the human patient? You know, how much does the mouse really replicate the human disease based on your experience now? Yeah, great question. We, well, we have a mouse and a rat. We got two models that we, we use to study Pompeii disease. And the mouse, they both very faithfully seem to recapitulate the muscular and neural pathology. I'm always struck by that. Like it, they look similar. Um, symptomatically, I would say that the, the mice probably do a little better than the patients. Uh, they do develop a respiratory phenotype as do the rats. And in fact, the whole reason I, I started studying this disease goes back 20 years. We did one experiment where we had a mouse with advanced Pompeii disease, and we used our standard experimental methods to record from the phrenic nerve, and we just couldn't get a signal out of it. And it just, we couldn't, we didn't get, we couldn't record a, the burst that we know we always record. And so I thought, well, there must be something wrong with the amplifier. But then we did it again. And, you know, and we kept finding this very low neural drive and that sort of led us to explore histopathology and control of breathing in the model. So I do think they've been an excellent, uh, as you say, excellent complement to the, the patient studies, because we've been able to test out some of the hypotheses, like how do we deliver genes to the right spot? Uh, and it's, it's comforting to know that the, the animals have the same patholo the histopathology as well as a similar breathing phenotype. Yeah, Dave, uh, you won't believe it, but I still remember your first talk at, at experimental biology many years ago. And I was really struck by the fact that, that you see a decreased neural drive as, as one of the symptoms. And, and I find this really important for the, this combination of neuroscientists with uh, therapists, because there's often the tendency to think really it's in the periphery, the problem, you know, like, like we think about obstructive sleep apnea, where you know, you clearly have a problem with hypoglossus drive and then the collapse, et cetera. But, but really at the cause is, is still essential nervous system component. And it is the one that is often overlooked and it's difficult to measure in, in a human. And I think that's where this combination of animal research and, and human research is so beneficial and inspirational, conceptually important. So, so that's why, as I said, when I read this study, I was so fascinated and, um, And of course, the reviewers were also fascinated. So everybody loved it. So what are your next steps 
going forward? I mean, you, you mentioned already gene therapy, but also, I mean, like uh, Barbara from, from the therapeutic and, and physical therapy approach, what, where do you go now? Yeah, excellent question. So as I mentioned, you know, probably for Pompe disease and, and other diseases that are, that are um, you know, similarly difficult to manage, um, this layered approach to uh, address breathing challenges in patients. And so as, as a person primarily interested in breathing and different rehabilitation approaches to address breathing, um, exercise, uh, specific respiratory exercises, um, acute intermittent hypoxia, I think has been one that's been sort of in, in the back of our mind for, we're uh, finishing the study of acute intermittent hypoxia in ALS. And, you know, based on what we see there, you know, we may make some decisions to, to determine if we feel it's appropriate here. So, so certainly, uh, and as we've already mentioned, gene therapy is another, I think, area that's uh, a considerable interest, both for the infantile onset, as well as the later onset disease. Bigger people are a little harder to treat with gene therapy, but certainly I think there are a lot of uh, folks looking at some innovative ways to, to address that. Barbara, you, you emphasize your interest in, in breathing, but the question is, do you see also effects on vocalization, swallowing? You know, do you see dysphagia in these patients? And, uh, and also associated with, let's say, apneas that could occur in, in this disorder, uh, do you have sleep disturbances? So... So what are the breathing associated complications when we look at this in a broader picture? Great question. Yeah. So this individual, even though breathing was so impacted, uh, speaking and eating uh, were still reasonably functional for this individual. Um, we see greater swallowing problems in our uh, more severe phenotype, the infantile onset uh, that uh, Swallowing and speaking seems to be um, impacted a little bit more profoundly. So this uh, this patient certainly was it was easy to understand him. He was able to get his point across. Um, the timing of his speaking and the quality and uh, loudness of his voice um, that was impacted certainly, but uh, his ability to coordinate speaking was pretty unaffected. Well, it's important to look at it as the whole patient, you know. David, what are your next steps? Where do you want to take it from here? Well, the, having spent a, a lot of hours at the microscope evaluating the histology on this case study, the thing that was most striking to me and was the apparent just atrophy and potential even loss of neurons in the, the cervical cord and the medulla. So these are, these are in areas of very important for breathing, obviously, because this is where your tongue motor neurons, your diaphragm motor neurons. And what we're doing is we're using the animal models now to really try and build on that question. Like we've got an ongoing study where we're trying to determine exactly you know, if and when motor neurons are dying in this disease. Uh, and then we've got another ongoing study where we've, we've done various 
iterations of the gene therapy, and we're looking at how that can that preserve motor neuron function as the animals with Pompe disease age. So, so in a nutshell, I'm just I'm really focused on how do we preserve motor neuron health, and and even even the question of why if the motor neurons are dying, what why are they dying? Like we can't really answer that right now. Um, we just know that the there's a mutated gene and there's something wrong with lysosomes, but what would lead to death is a, is a whole th- a whole nother area to explore. Dave, you also show that that there's microglia invasion. So so do you think like anti-inflammatory strategies could help? Potentially, yeah, because we, we see that in the animal models and we see that here in the, in the patient. So I don't know if that's something, Barb, clinically, is that something that's being done with the patient management? That's not a typical um, management approach for patients clinically, unless perhaps a patient has had a, a respiratory infection and they may receive some corticosteroids for a brief period of time, but that's not a typical maintenance therapy for patients. Uh, I also found it interesting, you know, just the, the rostral to caudal difference in the neural pathology, because clinically we do see a distinction between loss of breathing function and loss of other motor function, such as walking. And so when we compare to, you know, maybe other diseases like muscular dystrophy, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, um, we typically see patients um, require a wheelchair support and come off their feet before they need support for their breathing. That comes later. But that's sort of reversed here in Pompe disease. And that I think is something that is, uh, that's special and interesting. And, and also in light of the histology findings where we're maybe seeing some of these distinctions. Yeah, if I could follow that, I, I concur that one of the most striking observations from this case study was that the neurons in the more caudal regions of the spinal cord displayed what would be considered the classic lysosomal disease appearance, which is a swollen cell body and the displaced nucleus is very consistent with like classic lysosomal storage disease. But then as you moved rostral, the cells were, they looked shriveled and atrophied. And it's as if they were at a more advanced stage of the disease. So why is it that those cells, you know, it could be, maybe they're more metabolically active, right? Because they're the respiratory cells. So it's it's a striking observation and definitely, I think, really important. Interesting. Yeah, we, we discussed, you know, also rostrocaudal progression in cerebral palsy. And, and so I think there are really stereotypic kind of neurodevelopmental steps that a disease goes through that maybe also helps us uh, in understanding what's really happening and how we can delay these steps in order to delay the progression. So it's really interesting. So uh, can we get from you the important take-home messages that you want the listeners to remember? Maybe let's start with Barbara and then Dave. Sure. Yeah. So I I think maybe two take-home messages are in in this particular case study, uh, the collaboration of our team, I think, helped us to really maybe answer more questions than we thought initially possible. Um, when we pulled together just this, this 
lovely mosaic of expertise where we have Dr. Byrne, who's our, our director of our rare disease research lab and the Powell Gene Therapy Center. We have rehabilitation. We've got a lot of neuroscience expertise on this paper, as well as Dr. Yaknes and, and Trejo Lopez, who are our pathologists and PI of the, the director of the Neuromedicine Tissue Bank. I think that really helped us to answer some questions that we wouldn't otherwise be able to make. So um, the, the teamwork is an outstanding thing. That is so important. And I think neuroscience in general has really been transformed into team sciences. And if you're alone, it's difficult to make a huge impact, but it's wonderful how this combination came together. So thank you so much. And Dave. Uh, I would first just like to take the opportunity to acknowledge the, the really wonderful work of Michael Sunshine, who's a, a postdoc in my lab, Sabia Rana, who's another postdoc, and Tori Bindi, who is a, a research technician. And they all made fundamental contributions to the analyses of these data. So I just want to give a shout out to them. And for me, the, the takeaway message is that Pompeii disease is unquestionably ha has a robust cardiac and skeletal muscle phenotype. But there is a neurologic component, and if, if the muscles are treated, eventually the nervous system is going to, you know, that, that uh, pathology is going to manifest. And so I think to effectively treat the disease, we need to be thinking about treating, as I like to say, the entire motor unit, so the, the neuron and the fibers that it connects to. I love that message. And you haven't forgotten the... What about the CPG, the central driver in the medulla? You see a lot of medulla effects and it's, it's amazing how, how we have to learn and, and to look at it from different aspects. And yeah, I, I was very fascinating. Thank you so much talking to you. And I've been always a fan of University of Florida, how you brought together these teams. And it's great to hear also how wonderful new generation of uh, students and pathologists were on this project. So I encourage you to study more case studies. I think uh, it's perfect for the Journal of Neurophysiology. And of course, we love to publish also your other work on spinal cord injury, et cetera. So thank you so much, everybody, and have a wonderful time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.